Our text this morning is going to be John 3, and it will be verses 1 through 10. How about, uh, Anthony, would you be up for doing that for us, brother? Yes. I thought you might. All right, so uh, John 3, 1 through 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born for when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer, friends. Thank you, Anthony, by the way. Father, your word is good. And this morning you show us something tremendous. How can we know you? And our only hope to know you, our only hope to see the kingdom of God is to be born again. So Lord, here in this setting, we pray this, that you would do what must happen to make us able to see the kingdom of God. We pray that you would do what is needed that we might be able to have our eyes spiritually open and to be spiritually alive. And God, in all of that, in all of that, we ask you just for mercy, Lord, because we need your mercy to work in us and through us. Father, be magnified. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, you saw Jesus um, let you know that there are people who have a faith that saves. And then you find that there are those who have a faith that doesn't save. There are some people who their belief is one that doesn't reach the heart. It only stays in the head. And that's troubling because for those, there is no genuine salvation. There's only a, there's only a playing games with God. And that's never a thing that we want. And in today's message, we're going to meet a man who has that kind of non-saving sort of faith. He's seen Jesus, and he knows who Jesus is to a degree. But what he doesn't know, what he doesn't know is the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a high-ranking Jew. 
He's a man who was seen as an important person. He was seen as a, as a teacher. He was seen as a religious leader. He was seen as a guy that the nation could look to and say, what a man this is, this Nicodemus. What a great, smart, intelligent, religious man Nicodemus is. But when Nicodemus comes face to face with the Lord Jesus, what we see is that he doesn't have God. Now, as we look at this this morning, we're going to do our best to come across two key points, two key application principles. But even as we come across those two key points and two key application principles, we're also going to be coming across a spot, or, or, several deep truths, maybe some side points and some theological things that will be helpful to you. So as we get ready uh, to dive in, I think the thing that you want to be asking the Lord for yourself right now is you want to be asking the Lord, how can you best know the Lord? How can you be sure that you know the Lord? You should be asking yourself, what is what we study today, what's it going to have to do with how we share the gospel and how we properly praise the Lord? We will see God's majesty in view here. And so there are some great, uh, great elements here. I'm going to ask one more time, Anthony, if you wouldn't mind, to read for us the first three verses. I'm almost back to being set up, so I should be fine in just a second. But if you wouldn't mind, I would, I would love that. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. We don't know where they are. It could be at a house. It could be uh, wherever Jesus was staying. But we're in and around Jerusalem. We're still the week of the Passover. And Nicodemus wants to talk to Jesus. He has reason to believe that Jesus is someone special. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, again, like I said earlier, he's missed everything about who Jesus is. Our first point that we're going to apply to all of this is this call. Come to Jesus in humility. Come to Jesus in humility. So the phrase here, now there was a man. You see there at the beginning of verse 1? It actually connects us to the last chapter. I want to read to you 2.23 to 25. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So again, it's the week of feasting. Many people believed in Jesus, but they didn't have life-changing faith because Jesus knew what was in. Notice at the end of chapter 2, it says Jesus knew what was in a man. Then we see there was a man named Nicodemus. He is a man, like connects us to what we saw there. So John is giving you a hint right there that Nicodemus is one of the kinds of people he's talking about. There's really not a break here. So what's Nicodemus doing as he comes to Jesus? In many a political encounter, people are going to come to you and begin with a, a flowery speech 
a lot of compliments to get you started. That's how you butter somebody up to make them willing to talk to you or get them to answer the questions, especially the big spiritual political questions you want answered. So Nicodemus, when he comes up to Jesus, he is intending to compliment Jesus. He calls Jesus rabbi. That means teacher. That's a term Nicodemus wouldn't just give anybody, but he puts Jesus on a fairly high level. Then Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know. Now, who's this we that he's talking about? Maybe Nicodemus has somebody with him, but I think it's far more likely that what Nicodemus is doing is he's presenting himself as, as, as representing others among the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin that he represents. But you need to feel with his we a pretty high opinion of himself. We, the ruling council, we, the pious, we, the religiously wise, we, the important teachers, we know, Jesus, who you are. We know a little bit about you anyway. The word we makes Nicodemus, it's not personal, it's just me and my guys who are the important folks in the city. He can feel secure and part of the group. He says, we know, Jesus, your teacher come from God. Otherwise, you couldn't do all the miracles you've done. He's saying to Jesus, well, I mean, there are some people who recognize that you're doing some powerful things, and that tells us you've got the approval of God. Now, here's the side point. Be careful reasoning like Nicodemus right there. While Jesus' miracles do testify of his identity, there are people who are not of God who have displayed miraculous powers both throughout Scripture and throughout history. So you want to be very careful assuming that supernatural or even supernatural-looking power indicates that somebody is from God. Many people in the past have been misled by false teachers who have done things to convince people that they've got powers or that they can work miracles. And by the way, there is a very real devil who is a spiritual being who does have power and he would love nothing more than to empower people to deceive you. So, I want to remind you of a warning from God's law in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. You may want to turn there, you may not. That's up to you. Let me ask you. It's not Sunday school, but you can answer this question. What do we do? How do we test if someone says they're a prophet? How do we know if they're not? What's your guess? By what they say, says Anthony. Anybody else? Tested against the word. word. Good. And if what they say happens. But here's the scary thing about that last one especially. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, wait, 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 hold on. If the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, what does that mean? That means there might be somebody who could show up, claim miraculous power, and then do a thing to back it up. 
And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. The point is what? We need to trust the word of God even more than we are willing to trust miracles. Never follow any person who would turn you away from scripture even if they look like they can do a miracle. Now, did Jesus' signs point to the truth of his identity? Absolutely, they did. And yes, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate proof of who Jesus claims to be. But we want to be careful not to just say that anybody that's got some power, anybody that looks impressive, they must be from God. Righteous and biblical character and biblical teaching should be the mark you look for as you decide to be part of a church or follow any particular teacher. With me? Just an important side note, you need it. Now, back to the original conversation. Nicodemus, he's made a nice opening statement. He is respectful to Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus comes from God. He thinks Jesus is a teacher empowered by God. He recognizes that Jesus' miracles come from God and likely it's about to lead to some questions. We know all this about you, Jesus, but why did you just ransack the temple? Or, okay, you got this kind of power, Jesus. When are you going to drive out the Romans? Or, hey, just curious, you're not thinking you're going to need a seat on the council, are you? Or, can you give me just a little more proof? I'd like to see something else really cool so I know what to believe about you. And here we go. I think you can see here that Nicodemus is approaching Jesus in the way that he talks, kind of like an equal. You and I, we're teachers. We among the council want to know more. Surely you won't mind giving me a little more info. But whatever Nicodemus wanted to say, he never gets there. Jesus responds with a very weird sentence based on what Nicodemus just said, by the way, in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm telling you the absolute truth, a big truth, Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the awkward pause that must have followed that? Imagine what Nicodemus must have thought. Hey, I'm complimenting you here. What's this about? I practiced my opening speech all afternoon. You could have just said thank you. In verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus a few things. And as we think about our application, I think we can see that Jesus is intending here to humble Nicodemus. <laughs> you? <laughs> you all know? No. You don't know about me. You can't know anything about me 
or about God's kingdom unless you are born again. So Nicodemus, put your speech away and we'll really get down to business. Jesus cuts Nicodemus off and he redirects the conversation. Now, there's a reason I suggest to you that this first point is about humility. Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus with a little bit of arrogance. We know you're a teacher. And if Nicodemus is anything like the Jews that we've seen throughout the first of this book, he's going to demand that Jesus explain himself. Prove yourself to me. Justify yourself to me. And I will judge and I will see whether or not I think I can believe you. But think about how many people in the world do the very same thing toward Jesus right now. How many people say that they know Jesus is a good moral teacher? Jesus is a wise philosopher. How many people say that they believe in a general sense in God? Yeah, I, mean, I believe there's a God. I believe even Jesus came from God, sure. How many people do you know would go to Jesus with questions that they would say, well, should Jesus answer these questions, I might believe in him. Many people would raise problems like, God, explain to me why there's so much evil in the world. And if you explain it to my satisfaction, God, I might do you the honor of giving you my faith. But you can tell from Jesus' response to Nicodemus that such responses are not appropriate from man to God. No man has the right, or woman, has the right to sit in judgment over God. God does not owe you or me or anybody else an explanation for why anything happens or why he does or does not do anything. God is the creator. We are the creation. He does not have to explain himself to us. Instead, God tells you and me what is required to be righteous before him. And we don't negotiate the terms of righteousness with God. We either follow God or we face God's wrath. And that's the end of the discussion. I think we also should be careful coming to Jesus with assumptions that we know who he is. Again, Nicodemus was correct. Jesus is a teacher come from God. And Jesus' miracles do attest to us identity. Nicodemus' view of who Jesus is fell far short of the mark, didn't it? Don't presume that you can tell Jesus who he is. Don't presume you can call Jesus good teacher and nothing more. Because if you do that, you're wrong. And if you underestimate who Jesus is, you hand Jesus an infinite insult because he is the infinite God. Jesus does not give anybody the option of seeing him as merely a good or great moral teacher. We've read it in John already. The scripture says Jesus is God. When we keep going through John, we're going to see time and time again Jesus claimed to be God. Now, follow me with the old argument from C.S. Lewis. If Jesus claims to be God, you cannot call Jesus merely a good man or a good teacher. 
Because if he claims deity but is not God, he is not in any way a good man. Does that make sense? C.S. Lewis says there, there are only a few options if Jesus says he's God but isn't. C.S. Lewis said one thing is he could be a lunatic on the level of a man who claims to be a poached egg. What's that mean? If G, it could be, if, if someone says they're God but they're not, then they could be nuts. They might just be insane. Or maybe the other option that you could have is that he is a liar like the devil. After all, if Jesus knows that he is not God but pretends to be God, he is doing one of the most evil, godless, and deceptive things ever done in human history. Or, the other option, and the only real other option you have, is that Jesus is telling the truth. He really is the Lord of heaven and earth. And in that case, your only appropriate response to Jesus is to bow in worship. So, who is Jesus? Good teacher is not enough. Good teacher from God is not enough. When you come before Jesus, you need to drop all your preconceived notions and allow only God's word and God's Holy Spirit in that word tell you who he is because it'll show you Jesus is God. Drop any arrogance you have. Drop any thoughts that you're going to choose what you will accept and what you will reject out of the scriptures. Just come to Jesus in humility. And I would say this right now, a lot of you are hearing me and you're like, yeah, that's what those non-Christians need to hear, right? Be honest, Christians. Isn't that kind of what you're thinking right now? You're not going to tell me, are you? But guys, Christ has revealed himself to us in his word, right? And we must take Jesus at his word. Do you catch yourself, even as a Christian, assuming things like, God wouldn't do things that way? I have a friend who, he coined a little phrase and we never let it go. He said, that can't be true. I don't like it. (laughs) You ever catch yourself thinking like that? If I don't understand it, it must not be God's way. Um... Look around our culture and tell me what things you'd say. I really understand how God's working this. Is your opinion of God, Christian, is your opinion of what God will do or how God's going to do things, is it based on God's word or is it on your preconceived notions of how you think God ought to act? The call is to look into God's word. Be humble as you come before Jesus. Because God tells you who he is and what he's like and how he does things in Scripture alone. So Jesus doesn't let Nicodemus go on and on about what Nicodemus thought that he knew. Instead, Jesus tells Nicodemus that Nicodemus needs to have a major change if he's going to know anything at all, and we all need the same change. Jesus tells Nicodemus he has to be born again. And without that occurring... Jesus says, nobody without that can even see the kingdom of God. You cannot see, you cannot understand anything related to God without the rebirth. This is Jesus referencing, in case you're not sure, a saving relationship with God. How do we know? Well, 
all people everywhere will see the kingdom of God, right? I mean, if you live on this earth, you are seeing the kingdom of God, whether you like it or not. But to see the kingdom of God in the way Jesus is talking here means to see God, to understand God, to desire God, to get to know God, to be in a saving relationship with God in which you turn from sin to salvation. The only way you can do that is to be born again. The only way a person can be saved, according to the words of Jesus, is that a person be born again. Now, interestingly, the Greek word that's there behind the word again, born again, it can mean two things, and they're very different things. It can literally mean the word again, another time, or the same word can literally mean from above. Isn't it clever that God would use those words in his inspiration of what John wrote? Now, Jesus was speaking Aramaic probably to Nicodemus, and those words don't match so closely there. And you follow the rest of the conversation, it looks like Jesus must have used the word that means again. But I think we could say very safely that if you want to be saved, you must experience a second birth, and that second birth has to come to you from above. Without that, nobody can be saved. Now, here's the question, because I know you're deeply wanting to know. How does that second birth come? This will help us, and it gives us our second major application point. I want you to recognize that salvation is spiritual. Salvation is spiritual. Recognize that salvation is spiritual. Verse 3, again, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? (laughs) Jesus says you've got to be born again to see God's kingdom. And even before Nicodemus can wonder about the implications of it, Nicodemus is hung up on the metaphor, which shows that Jesus is right. Nicodemus, one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet in Scripture, he needs something spiritual to happen or he will not be able to even see, grasp, glimpse, understand spiritual truth. Nicodemus asks, how can I be physically born again? Because it seems ridiculous to him what Jesus has just said. So he asks an intentionally ridiculous question. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says to us, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Verse 5, though, Jesus explains the metaphor a little bit more. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, again, big truth here, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' words right here, they're not saying anything about baptism. That's not what the water's about. Neither are they suggesting that we got two births mentioned in that one sentence, the water birth that's an earthly birth and a spiritual birth that's a heavenly birth. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is doing is telling Nicodemus what kind of birth is being born again. You need a birth of water and the Spirit. That's the kind of birth you need. Your earthly birth is one thing, but your birth of water in the Spirit is something else. What in the world is he talking about? Because that sounds very strange to our ears. 
If you knew, if we knew the Old Testament the way we should know it, we would be thinking about what what does an Old Testament believer think about water and the Spirit? Water in the Old Testament is used regularly to talk about being cleansed. But when you put water and the Spirit together, you see them tied together powerfully in a significant passage of the Old Testament, talking about the impact of the coming of the New Covenant, actually. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, this seems to be what Jesus is hinting at that Nicodemus should have picked up. He was a teacher of Israel. He had these books memorized. He probably had his whole Old Testament memorized. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. There's the spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now guys, do you think Nicodemus knew that passage of scripture? I guarantee you that was a big one. And in this passage, water cleanses, and in its context, it's associated with God giving you a new heart, new, brand new, spiritual life. That sounds a lot like a new birth, doesn't it? And because this is a familiar passage in the Old Testament, Nicodemus should have understood it. He should have been tracking with Jesus, and he wasn't. Verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Here the metaphor gets even clearer. Physical bodies give birth to physical bodies, Right? Earthly goodness is good for earthly things. But if you want spiritual life with God, you need a spiritual birth to take place. And it's different than something physical. It's a spiritual act. Jesus tells Nicodemus, this this shouldn't be an amazing thought, Nick. New life, new hearts, the outpouring of the Spirit of God, they're talked about in the Old Testament. Nicodemus, you ought to know this. And it ought to make sense to you, Nicodemus, that something spiritual has to happen for a man to enter into God's kingdom. Jesus illustrates with wind. We all know wind is there. We hear it blow. In fact, we're about to really start hearing it. We've got a wind advisory for today. We feel the wind, right? We see what it does. But do any of you know how it works? Be honest with me. How many of you know how the wind works? I mean, maybe you're a meteorologist in this room and you get it, but that's not the point Jesus was making anyway. In general, would you guys agree with me that nobody knows exactly where the wind comes from? You with me? Nobody sees where the wind's going. Here's an even better one. How many of you, this is a poll, so you've got to participate with me. How many of you have ever managed to start or stop the wind 
by your power. Anybody? How many of you can start the wind? But this is what the spiritual birth is like, Jesus says. Now, how's that different than Nicodemus' worldview? How's that different than your worldview? Maybe that of your friends? Nicodemus believed most likely that people get into the kingdom of God by doing good things. Nicodemus believes that proper obedience to the law of God will gain you the forgiveness of God. It will earn you the right to be in the kingdom of God. And even today, most people in the world believe the very same thing, don't they? Most people believe that if their good deeds just outweigh their bad deeds, they're clearly going to be okay with God. If I'm a better person than you, I must be okay with God. If I'm a better person than Hitler, I must be okay with God. And every other world religion out there that believes in a God believes that you are made right with that God by doing right things that the God wants. And sadly, many people who come inside the walls of a church building, they actually are believing, if they're not careful, they believe that they're singing, that they're attending, that they're serving, that they're giving, that those things have an impact on whether or not they go to heaven. And that's not true. We don't serve to go to heaven. We serve because we're already going to heaven. Jesus takes all that kind of presumption away. All of those things, all of the things that we just talked about, they're all physical actions. They're the things that we do with our bodies. They're flesh. And flesh gives birth to flesh. It does not give birth to spiritual life. Salvation, entering the kingdom of God, it is a spiritual thing. It's a from above thing. So listen to me very carefully, okay? You cannot do anything so that you personally can earn God's favor. No act of righteousness, no matter how righteous, will ever make you right before God. No act of religion, no matter how religious, will ever make you right before God. You could give away all your money and feed the hungry and work with AIDS patients in Africa and then go and travel and work with orphans in, Ch- in Thailand and then you can work with the dying in the streets of Calcutta and then on your way home, you could sacrifice your life to, sa- to save a child that's about to be run over by a bus and you will still not go to heaven if a spiritual birth hasn't taken place in your life. It's that simple. No good deed, no set of good deeds, no human action gets you into heaven. Now this concept alone would have blown Nicodemus's mind. <laughs> what about all my sacrifices? What about my rituals? What about our obedience to the law? What about my robe and my phylacteries? What about the way that me and my buddies have added things to the law of God to make it even more strict than God made it, Jesus? What about that stuff? Y'all, many people need to camp right here and see that no physical action gets a person into heaven. And that might tell you When you look at your life and you say there's not a single act you can do that will make you right before God, this might be the moment where you finally realize that you've got to cry out to God and say, God, I can't do anything. Please, because of Jesus, save me. Please save me from a life that has been previously based on my goodness or my religion. But let me show you one more thing that's true here. 
Look back at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where, it's go, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. The word for wind, by the way, in Hebrew and Greek, it's the same word as wind or spirit. Same word. It's kind of fun. Little word play again from Jesus. The wind blows where it wishes, so the Spirit of God moves where the Spirit of God wishes. Spiritual birth, then, is the result of an act of God, not an act of man. You say to me, yeah, you just told us that, Travis. But I want you to think deeper with me here. Babies do not decide when to be born. You understand that, don't you? It's not like the baby's in the womb going, I think Thursday, that's what I'm going to do. Thursday's when I'm coming out. You know what the baby gets? Shoved out. Something happens to the baby that makes it be born, right? Sailors and farmers all rely on the wind. But not one of them can make it blow or make it stop. And if you are born again, you are born spiritually because of what God did in you through his spirit, not because of what you first decided to do with God. New life is a gift from God. It comes from above. It is like being born. It is like being blown by the wind. It happens to you. You don't make it happen. Thus, if you are saved, let me ask, are you saved? How many of you are saved in this room? Genuinely rescued by Jesus. Are you? Yeah? Yeah? All right. If you are, 100% of the credit for that salvation must go to God, not to you because you're smarter than your neighbor. And certainly not because you're better than your neighbor. So Christians, two responses. First, Give God all the glory for your salvation and thank Him because God made you born again. If God hadn't done that, you could never have seen the kingdom of God, verse 3. You could never have entered the kingdom of God, verse 5. He did the work, so to God be the glory. If you came to Jesus in faith, You did so by God's movement. You understood spiritual reality because God gave spiritual birth to your heart. So I would ask you, Christian, stop today and worship the holy, sovereign God because God gave you salvation. Second, this ought to give you a tremendous amount of confidence for evangelism because salvation is spiritual, It does not rely on your skill as an evangelist. Are you not glad about that? (laughs) Is there somebody you want to see saved? Then pray and tell them the truth. Pray that God will give them spiritual birth because guess what? You can't fight that. There's not a baby in this world that could fight being born. There's not a tree in the world that can fight the wind. The wind blows wherever it wishes. The spirit moves wherever he wishes. Christians pray and say, God, please give them life. Because there is no human heart, no matter how dead that heart is, that God cannot break through with spiritual life. 
The sovereignty of God gives hope to those who want to share the gospel. And I love the way John Piper asks the question one time. He was just perplexed at the end of a class, and he said, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, what exactly do you pray for when you try to share the gospel? God, please arrange the circumstances, but do so without violating anybody's freedom whatsoever so that you might... That doesn't make any sense. What are you asking God to do? Christians, when we want to see people saved, we pray, God, please give life to a dead heart. Bring spiritual birth that they might then respond in faith and repentance. If God is not sovereign, nobody is ever getting saved, folks. Because we're dead in our sins apart from God. If God isn't sovereign, nobody's ever coming to Jesus. If God doesn't give new birth and make dead hearts alive, nobody's going to be convinced by your presentation of the truth. But since God is sovereign, since the new birth is spiritual, when you tell somebody about the grace of God in Christ, when you present people with the word of God, some people are going to be saved because God supernaturally gives the spiritual life to dead spiritual hearts. All right, logic question. What about the lost then? Does the sovereignty of God and human salvation mean that God withholds salvation from some people who want it? Not at all. The scriptures never even begin to hint that anybody could want God but not be saved. Never. Did you hear me what I just said, by the way? The scriptures never hint that somebody would want God but not be saved. The scriptures never say, but that person, they want to be saved, they're doing everything right to be saved, but God just won't open their hearts so they're not saved. No, no, no. What do the scriptures say? If somebody desires God, it's because God did the miracle in their heart. Otherwise, the person is naturally, fully, happily bent against God. There is no biblical grounds for suggesting that God's sovereignty treats anybody unfairly or unkindly. We have to let Scripture, my friends, tell us of the mysterious, mighty working of God that changes human hearts to bring people to salvation. We need to trust that God does things in ways that we would never imagine, that God does things that we may not be able to understand. We need to believe the Word of God above our own reasoning as to how God should do things. We need to believe the Word of God that indeed says God does the sovereign work and yet mankind is utterly and completely responsible. And let's trust the goodness of Jesus and let's give Jesus all the credit and all the glory without taking a shred for ourselves. Give him all the credit for any human being's salvation. Let's pray together, friends. God, you are good. It's been a weird day, Lord. But I know you're good and I know you're doing your work and you're doing your work in us. What I would pray, God, is that as you do that work now, you'll do two things. One, anybody here that does not have spiritual life, I pray that you'll give it. I know you can. 
two. Lord, anything that I'm missing? Any part of my presentation that's not honoring to you, I pray that you will correct, that we might think only biblical thoughts of you. Three, I pray that every Christian will be even more thrilled by your grace and that we'll let your sovereignty make us be even more gracious a people. Let us rejoice in Christ and trust you and see the miracle of new birth. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.